Hello everyone, here I'm with Professor Elizabeth Armstrong from Smith College, and we're talking about her paper on Marxist feminism and socialist feminism. And I was sort of wondering how uh, currently Marxist feminism is different in different continents or different countries or just parts of the world, mm. and if there's kind of a disparity between what socialist feminists are thinking in the U.S. versus mm. Uh, the South versus England, anything like that? Right. Such a good question. So right now I'm teaching an online course called Revolutionary Feminism, and that's a global course. And folks are coming from all over the world. I'm teaching it with four other people. We're all from different continents. We're all Marxist feminists. Um, and it's more of a movement course, so it's for organizers. So I am starting to get a feel for, for both, like, individually among organizers what they're thinking about the movements yes they are different so if you look at latin america the way that i'm going to send you another pamphlet that just came out from this um from a, a group called tricontinental that i'm part of but i had nothing to do with this pamphlet like it was not written by me it had nothing to do with it um but it's part of my collective and so Feminists in, uh, Marxist feminists in Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Namibia, India, and Nepal wrote this pamphlet on Corona shock, but it's about patriarchy and it's from a Marxist feminist perspective. And um, I think what's, I think what's the same is that inequality in relation to patriarchy and oppression is a constant. So the questions of how systemic violence produces the possibility of, of shutting out half the population, right, from the, from, from the social resources and social values and, and ethical values. Like, how do you do that? That's hard. 50% of the population, what the hell? So that's one thing, is the question of just raw violence is universal. So the other is, what are the ways that it, we can't solve this problem just by saying this is a women's issue? We, we, can, we, can, we have to take it on in that way, but we have to take up the class system. And, and rather than just say this is a women's issue, let women deal with it, if you take it as a class analysis, you can say, all right, fellas, you're down with the proletarian, you're from the working class, you're also struggling to eat, like this is your problem. And that's something that I see, those two things are constant. Um, the, the cultural aspects of it are completely different. That's the piece that just as an ethnographer, which is one of the things I do, um, is, is fabulous. Um, so like in South Africa, you never start a meeting without song. And it mm -hmm. sounds trivial. It sounds small. A song and dance, if you're in person, on Zoom song. Um, in, um, and, and Latin, so that's South America. I'm not from this tradition. I, I'm not used to like breaking out into song at the beginning of a meeting. Like that's, that's new. Um, in, um, in Latin America, they start with something called mystica. And mystica is um, some kind of artistic form of any kind. It can be a painting, it can be a performance, it can be an enactment, it can be a comedy sketch. But mystica is meant to be a moment when you create the world you want to live in. Mm -hmm. Again, totally out of my, like, what the hell do I know about Mystica? Nothing. And so these kinds of, and in India, which is where I do a lot of my work, I've spent a lot of my life in India working with Marxist feminists in India. That's much closer to my, 
to, to where I come from, I guess you could say. Um, and in India, there, there, are, there are other kinds of traditions, but they're not at the beginning of a meeting. Um, there's different kinds of ways of like opening a space for Marxist feminists. So I would say at the level of the analysis, remarkably similar. At the level of how do we weave these ideas into the world we live in, the differences are more, how do we bring these ideas into our daily lives? Mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we make them normal rather than freakish? I mean, Marxist feminism in North America, I think you would agree, is still like outlier, like what the hell? And in a lot of other places, through music, through song, through arts, through comedy, through, you know, stagings, it's made like, um, it helps explain the world rather than like, oh, you're such a radical. It's like, no, actually, this is the world we're living in. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me try and make sense of it alongside you. And I know you talked about like in the 1880s to the 1900s, people, mm -hmm. women were able to organize so that uh, factory work wasn't just seen as men's work. Mm -hmm. What exactly does organizing mean in the context of, you know, a hundred years ago and how has that sort of changed and what is that mm -hmm. I've always just wondered like what does organizing exactly mean yeah so back in the 1880s um, there were a couple of things really huge things that are different one is that women should not be in public like that was a cultural norm a cultural baseline so organizing at that point there were already women in factories like from the 1820s women were dominant in textile mills they were dominant in shoemaking they were dominated in all these like factory-based work it wasn't just piecework going home and like sewing a little something and so they were already in factories what was holding them back from organizing is that push against putting yourself in public once you're in public you're a whore right once you're in public you are a rapable whore i'm sorry to be really blunt no, Again, no, I'm I appreciate kill your high school it. Put class. it into perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, your, your mother's going to come and like track me down for being no, a no. jerk. But <laughs> so in that period, what was being produced is the possibility of being public. So already they're in the public because they're working. That's a public place. You're getting a wage. You're going to a job. You're in a factory. And public equals vulnerable, right? Equals morally questionable. And so what they had to do to organize, and these were young women, right? Because as soon as you get pregnant, it's much, there were still, you know, women with children who were in these factories, but young women were prized for a number of reasons. And one of them is the lack of kids. Um, so there were, they, to be vulnerable was already there in their work. And then to organize them meant finding the time away, um, getting away from the house. So all of these aspects of publicness were integrated into the organizing in the 19th century. And then at the, that, this period that you're talking about, the 1880s, this is when the revolutionary movements were just, they were on the upsurge. And what they were, so that publicness had been produced in the working class, not in the middle class. Like if you were a middle class woman, like tighten your laces, stay inside, like be a good little girl. But in the working class, you, women had greater opportunities for being in the public and not being always already morally suspect. Mm -hmm. Speaking was a different thing, like getting women in front of a crowd, that was a different thing, but it happened more. The thing that was happening in the 1880s and onward was that they should be leaders, they should be members of unions, they should be members not just of unions with all women, like in the textile mills, like which were, there were active union movements in these, in these factories, 
and really powerful ones. Women, they all admitted that women were the most powerhouse, revolutionary, do or die organizers. Like everybody knew that. But in the 1880s, they were like, no, women need to be in the so-called male unions. Mm-hmm. They need to be in the very, like in the printers unions and like the places where men were dominant, but still had women workers unionize them. Like you say that women are lowering your wages. Yeah, because we're not in the unions. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. So that's what, that's what started happening in the 1880s. And, the, and with that in revolutionary movements came the demand for women workers as leaders. Mm-hmm. So the perspective will be different. The demands will be different. You need a social wage. You need to have someone taking care of the kids. You need to have a crush system or a, what we call now a daycare system. So all of these kind of what you think of specialized or women's demands, they were like, no, those are universal demands. Like women didn't make babies all by themselves. It's just that socially women have been acculturated to be the caregivers. will make change that, collectivize that individual labor. So that's what was going on in the 1880s. And I think the second part that was the, the kind of pivotal part was women didn't have access to their own wages. So mm-hmm. young women would be giving, it would be a family wage. It would go back to the family. Um, married women, it would go to the husband. And legally, they had no access either to divorce or to their wages. Um, property, of course, working class people, none, nobody had property. So that wasn't as much the issue. But it was these two things of, of control over their wages and control over... Um, uh, now I forget what I just said. Oh, the ability to divorce. So if you have a crappy husband, you need to get out of the marriage. Not an option. That was more about the church, but they wanted to link that possibility with the state so that, so that women could leave bad marriages. Mm-hmm. So that was and that moment. I know it, uh, it changes, I guess, country to country, as we discussed before, but mm. you also mentioned the family unit and sort of how that affects things. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that still play a role now, even in countries that are considered, you know, modern feminist countries? How does the family unit uh, still impact? So this, I teach a Marxist feminism seminar in Smith. And this was our conundrum. Usually we work on sex work. For some reason, sex work is always what we land up on. But this semester, students were really digging into what, how, why, whether, this notion of a family unit is still used to, we call it reproduce capitalism. So the, the term we'll use is what are these, what we think of as ethical or moral or cultural systems, how are they reproducing capitalism? How are they allowing capitalism to like make it to another day? Meanwhile, we're starving, don't have healthcare, like, you know, the rich are getting richer, like all the things that we know. And then how do, like, this is a Gramscian question. So Antonio Gramsci is a Marxist from Italy in the 20s. And his question is, how do we agree? Like, how do we agree to this? You know, that all of the wealth goes to the very few and then the many have no access to resources or like, where's our consent? And so that's the question of the family, I think. How is the family unit part of producing consent to capitalism, to immiseration? And we can't, the students are, uh, this is where this class, you'll see this when you get into college, like classes have their own like thought process as a unit, especially at these upper levels. And we just sort of, we go on this journey and I'm sort of on the journey. So I think what the consensus we came to, because we worked on this really hard this semester, just by virtue of who was in the class, um, is that it's still at a symbolic level. Marriage is not necessary. 
And yet the state produces laws so that marriage becomes necessary. Like, how are you going to survive at the working class? Like the rich do what the rich do. But the working class, how do you survive on one wage? Mm -hmm. How do you make rent, even without kids, how do you survive on one wage? And so the family becomes a location for survival. And then the family also has all of these, you know, love and companionship and helping out and, and fun and pleasure and desire and joy. So the family is still holding the best of the world we live in. Mm -hmm. And yet it's, it, it, it's also a site of oppression. And that's the, what we say in Marxism, we call that a contradiction. That it's both the site of the maximum joy and survival and sometimes maximum oppression and um, lack delimitation, lack of, of joy. Mm -hmm. And does reproductive labor sort of fit into that? And yes, is that sort of like when when we say paid reproductive labor, does that mean literal money, or is that more so programs or both? Paid paid reproductive labor is wages for cleaning somebody's house or wages for taking care of somebody's kids. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was that movement, wages for housework, in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s that said women should get paid to take care of their own kids. Women should get paid to clean their own house. Um, and the idea there was that the state would pay and it would bankrupt capitalism and then we'd have the revolution. So that was the theory behind it. Um, it's been largely discounted, um, partly because it's been seen as a sort of racialized white strategy um, and European, Europeanized um, strategy. And, but those same thinkers, like if you want to read any one book, Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch, which right now everybody's reading. It came out in 94. It, it didn't have the splash that it's, or maybe it was 2004, uh, that it, I think it was in Italian first and then it came out in English. Um, right now everybody's got that book in their hands. Um, but that's the question she's asking. She comes from wages from housework and she stepped away from that demand. She's like, I don't think actually that's going to break the back of capitalism. Like it was a good idea. There's good parts to it. So reproductive labor is unpaid labor. Paid reproductive labor is that labor of the house that somebody does for wages. And I was also wondering, I think the idea of Marxist feminism is interesting because there's also Marxism or socialism. What's the mm -hmm. importance of the sort of subcategory, if you will, or uh, specifying Marxist feminism instead of just calling it Marxism? Oh, yes. Another good question. <laughs> so back in the day, they would hate Marxist feminism. So the movement that I worked with, which was a Marxist feminist movement in India, did not accept the term feminism. And it's only recently where they're like, okay, it's true. We're on the front lines fighting for women's right to live without violence against, you know, landlord oppression. So they've, they've taken up the term. Historically, it's, you know, the term white feminism. Mm -hmm. It's like white feminism is today. It's a way of saying feminism it, back in the 19th, 20th century. And in some movements to this moment, feminism meant for the bourgeoisie, for the rich women, like for white women. <laughs> in this context but in let's say in the indian context where they don't have a white feminism because the british were forced out and there aren't many whites there mm -hmm. um there are some uh 
it's seen as like, like Clara Zetkin writes about like, oh, you want the vote, you want the right to property, but you don't want the right to unions or fair wages or, you know, redistributing the social wealth. You just want yours. You want your pay or your house or, you know, so it's a way of saying there's, it, feminism then meant you just want the vote and you want the right to property. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, working class women want the vote. Hell yeah. But that means nothing in the face of starvation. Like, great, I get to vote. Thanks. But I can't find a place to live that I can afford. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what would you say right now the socialist feminism or Marxist feminism movement needs if it wants to sort of gain uh, more attraction, I guess, or more mm -hmm. uh, impact? And this is where North America is a kind of an outlier. Mm -hmm. In North America, it's a different case because there's, we're, we're, we live and breathe a kind of don't rely on the state, don't think socially, it's all about the individual and your family. Um, so we have such a long tradition of individualizing survival. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an uphill slog on this continent. I won't lie. Um, and I've been in the movement for a long time. Um, I, think, I think a moment like now, many of the equalities that become normal, naturalized, are, are slightly more visibilized. Like even in who's getting the, um, who's getting the vaccine right now? What mm -hmm. percentage of frontline workers are getting the vaccine? Or is it just, you know, Pence and Biden and you know what I mean? Like the, the uppity ups. Or at Stanford University, it came out, they got 5,000 vaccines and only seven went to nurses. Um, they were all going to the uppity ups. Mm -hmm. So we're in this moment where those naturalized equalities hopefully are a little more visible to people and not as natural, right? It's like, oh, you chose to, to give 4,993 of those vaccines to people who aren't frontline workers. That was a choice. So that's North America own little beast. I think around the world, um, and this is true in South Asia, in Latin America, and I would say particularly in Southern Africa right now, but I would Western, Eastern, yeah, I would say on the continent of Africa, I think it requires greater resources. I think imagining the state stepping up and providing healthy, safe childcare requires money, resources. And so I think if there were the resources to put into practice these, um, these imagined solutions to the basic problems we face, that would go a long way in convincing people that, oh, I have something to gain from this, this other way, this less, less celebrated way of organizing society. If you were to look at one place, it would be Kerala in India. It's a state in India. And because um, India is so much more federalist, um, states have access to a lot of resources. Mm -hmm. um, and so they've been putting into practice these real people power measures, and it's been bearing fruit at the local level. And women are at the front of it all. Um, so I, 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 whenever I start to get a little sad and <laughs> lose hope, I'm like, oh, let me just go read some things coming out of Kerala right now. <laughs> I'll send you a website. Um, a friend of mine runs a website called Potty, and he's he look he does a lot of like people's journalism, and and he has these beautiful stories coming out by the women who are part of these movements. 
Um, and they're, they're totally gorgeous because his emphasis is on photography as well as the journalism. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was really insightful. I feel like I just learned a whole course loads in like just the short amount of time. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure.